0: In 1866, there was a man named Robert J. Thomas who was a missionary for the Scottish Bible Society. And he had a heart for the Korean people. And he was serving in China. And he uh, discerned that because the Korean language is based on the Chinese language, that many of the educated Chinese people, or Korean people rather, could understand these Bibles that have been translated into Chinese. So he determined to take many of these Bibles over to Korea. Well, he boarded an American ship from China to Korea. And as they're making their way into the Korean shore, a, fire, a fight breaks out between the American ship and the Korean Coast Guard. The ship is burned, and every passenger on the ship is put to, is, is put to death, except Thomas. Thomas survived, uh, and he finds himself in the waters of the Korean shore, and he somehow finds some Bibles that had, uh, you know, fallen out of the ship, and he grabs those Bibles in his arms, and he struggles to make his way to the shore. But as he's struggling to approach the shore, there were some Korean soldiers there. And he thrust those Bibles into their hands, upon which they clubbed him to death. Very brutal event in missionary history. But as brutal as that story is, and it's analogous to our story we read today, it pales in comparison to what our Lord Jesus Christ experienced in His first advent. Like Thomas to Korea, uh, Jesus had a great love for the world, and that's why He came. But the world didn't accept Him. They, They scorned Him. We scorned Him. We put Him to death. And that's basically the point of today's parable. But it's not the end of the story. That's what we'll see as well. Now, Jesus is two to three days out from the cross. Some scholars believe this is Tuesday before Good Friday. Some believe that it's Wednesday before Good Friday. It's two to three days out from the most horrible event in the history of the world. The greatest tragedy in the history of the world is the cross. And with every text that we're going to look at, Jesus is taking one step closer. An event that uh, Luke has really been preparing us for, hasn't he? All the way back in chapter 2, you've got Simeon who's holding baby Jesus, the consolation of Israel, in his arms. And he tells Mary, he says, A sword will be pierced in your soul because of what happens to your son. And then we see even in chapter 9, verse 22, where Jesus uh, prophesies His suffering. He says, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be scorned. I'm going to be put to death, but I'm going to be raised on the third day. And then in chapter 9, verse 51, He sets His face towards Jerusalem. Luke wants Theophilus to know, and he wants us to know, that the reason Jesus Christ came was not fundamentally to be a miracle worker. Jesus Christ came to die. He came to experience the death and the judgment that His people deserve. That's why He came. And that's why it's fitting that in the last full-length parable in the Gospel of Luke, it's the last full-length parable in the Gospel of Matthew as well, we have this parable about His death. Now, last time, uh, just for review, we saw that Jesus essentially refused to answer the question of the Sanhedrin. When they said, "Whose authority? By what authority? Do you do these things? He answered their question essentially with a question back to them. But He's going to answer that question now. And He's going to answer it through a parable. And we see this parable in in verse 9 of chapter 20. And it takes us all the way to verse 16. Look with me in verse 9, it says he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and he led it out to rent it, uh, tenants. That is, he rented it out and he went into another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another uh, servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one they also wounded and cast out. And in Mark's account, which is certainly not in contradiction to this account, it's just that Mark just elaborates more, uh, it says that he sent many more. It wasn't just three that he sent. He sent many more, and all of them were treated the same way. Now, clearly, the owner of the vineyard here represents God. I mean, that's not even up for debate. He represents God, and um, he represents God who is obviously disrespected by the tenants. He sends these servants to the tenants, and they, instead of... uh, Submitting to the the owner's wishes through these servants uh, they beat and essentially torture. And Mark even says kill some of these servants. And yet despite the evil treatment of these servants that the owner sins, the owner is patient and merciful, okay? He's long-suffering. We sin against him over and over again and he is long-suffering. You know, that's essentially um, his nature. When Moses asked God to show him his ways and to show him his glory, God gave him his name. He said, The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger. That's the God we, uh, that we're under. Uh, that's the God who stands over us. He's slow to anger, showing steadfast love to thousands. Um, forgiving iniquity, transgressions, and sins. But who will by no means clear the guilty? God is patient with us. He patiently invites our repentance. Of course, this parable is coming in response to Israel's question, and in particular, Israel's leaders' questioning of Jesus. And so the image he gives here of the vineyard would have been an image that would have been very familiar To the leaders of Israel. The spiritual leaders, if you will. The vineyard clearly represents Israel. Alright? And that is a motif that you see throughout the Old Testament. Let me just give you a few examples. They are numerous. Um, For instance, in Psalm 80, verse 8, the psalmist writes, You, that is the Lord, brought a vine out of Egypt. So Israel there is depicted as a vine. You drove out the nations and planted it. Jeremiah says that God planted Israel in chapter 2 verse 21 like a choice vine, holy of pure seed. Hosea chapter 10 describes Israel as a luxuriant vine. Okay? Now, if you have any sense of redemptive history you understand this vineyard language is Eden-like, alright? Anytime you see this language of fruitfulness in vineyards, that is hearkening back to Eden, where you have this place, this temple, if you will, where God dwelled with Adam and Eve in perfect communion. It was a place of great fruitfulness, but we sinned, we lost the garden. And so Israel, as the vineyard of God, represents God's purposes to make all things new. To make a new Eden, if you will. Not just a a place in the Middle East. Essentially, the new heavens and the new earth will will be one big garden of Eden. A holy city. The new Jerusalem. And so this language uh, depicts God's purposes to make all things new new. Through the seed of Israel. Of course, we know that takes us all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant. Through your seed, all the nations will be blessed. But the most prominent place this language is used is in Isaiah 5. It's a very important passage. I want you just to read just a few of those verses. You don't have to turn there. It's on the screen. God says, this is the song of the vineyard. Let me sing for my beloved, who is his beloved Israel. My love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hoed out a vine uh, that in it and he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. It was bad fruit. Verse 4, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it when I look for it to yield grapes? Why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. Verse 7, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. He planted it for one reason, for it to bear fruit. Okay? But instead of bearing fruit, it bore bad fruit. Now, there's one difference between Isaiah 5 and Jesus' parable here. It's a very important difference, alright? Isaiah's passage is about the failure of the vineyard to bear good fruit, alright? But that's not Jesus' point in this parable. The, The vineyard produces wild grapes. But here the stress is not on the vineyard it's on the tenants or you could say those the workers of the vineyard uh, the stress is on the fact that the tenants are unwilling okay to give back some of the fruits to the owner they're willing they're unwilling to share the profits with the owner in other words the focus here is on the authority of the owner Remember the original question? They said, whose authority do you do these things? So the focus here is on the authority of the owner and the fact that these spiritual leaders do not submit to the servants that the owner sends is a reflection of the fact that they have not submitted to his authority. How do you know if you've submitted to the authority of God? You do what he says. You know what He says. For one thing, it's not biblical ignorance. You keep your Bible open. You know what He says. And you do what He says. That's how you know if you're under the authority of the owner. It's not this invite Jesus in my heart theology that does not change a life. It is someone who bows the knee to the owner. Okay? And these people were not willing to do that. This is an issue of authority. But here's the question. Who are the tenants? Who are the tenants who are keeping this vineyard? Well, it's very clear. Those who are responsible to care for Israel. And who was responsible to care for Israel? It's the spiritual leaders. It's the Sanhedrin. Spiritual leaders of Israel. The ones who are now seeking to murder Jesus. Alright? At this point, they want Him dead. And remember again, the parable stems from this question on authority. Authority. In other words, to reject Jesus is to reject the authority of God. If you refuse to embrace God's provision in Jesus Christ, I don't care how religious you are or how spiritual you perceive yourself to be. You are in rebellion to the authority of God. That's what Jesus is telling these spiritual leaders. And this rebellion had been that way for centuries. In fact, that's the reason they went into exile in the first place. Now, who do the servants represent? Now, that's an important question as well. The servants sent by the owner to the tenants of the vineyard represent the prophets. They represent those God raised up to indict Israel. For instance, in Jeremiah 25, verse 4, which is essentially a restatement of Jeremiah 7, verse 25, you have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all His servants, the prophets. Indeed, if you read the Old Testament, you know that uh, most of the Old uh, Testament prophets were mistreated. Many of them were killed. You have Elijah, who's run out of town by... Jezebel, he had to flee for his life. You have Jeremiah who's thrown into a pit and left for dead in Jeremiah 38. And then you've got this man named Zechariah in 2 Chronicles 24 who is put to death in the temple. I mean, that is scandalous. And essentially, that's how the, uh, the Old Testament ends. Uh, Second Chronicles 24, that is, that's how redemptive history ends in the Jewish Bible. And then the last Old Testament prophet was John the Baptist. What did they do to John the Baptist? They had him put to death. And so you have in this parable four groups up to this point. You've got the owner who represents God. You've got the vineyard who represents Israel. Uh, You've got the, the, the messengers, the servants, who are sent to the tenants. That represents the prophets. And then you have the tenants who represents the spiritual leaders. And all of these different groups have something to teach us. For instance, as I've said, the, the father represents his long suffering with sinners. He's a patient owner. And some of you today have never trusted Christ. You're still in your sins, and you think somehow you're going to get away with your sins. You think somehow in the end, God is going to be like an unscrupulous janitor who's just going to sweep your sins underneath the rug at the end of the day. He's long-suffering, but there is a day of reckoning for all of us. And so we learn something about God from this parable. We also learn something about the vineyard. The vineyard was born, the vineyard was planted to bear fruit. That's our purpose. We saw that all the way back in chapter 13 where you have the the parable of the the barren fig tree. The purpose for planting that fig tree was for it to bear fruit. We were created by God to bear fruit. Alright? And so, if we are not bearing fruit for God... The Scripture says we're using up His resources. Luke chapter 13. The servants represent those who bear the gospel. People like us. And it reminds us that if we are faithful to God, we will be persecuted. If you're not living a life that is in some way persecuted, perhaps you're not as faithful as you should be. Okay? Because all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And then you have the tenants who teach us something as well. What do the tenants teach us? Well, that teaches, teaches those who are in spiritual leadership. In order for them to be faithful to the stewardship task of spiritual leadership, they must be under the authority of God. And so all of these different groups teach us something. But it's not the point of the parable. All right? It's not the point of the parable at all. If that's all it is, it just gives us some moral lessons for living. We don't need moral lessons. We need a Savior. And that brings us to the point of the parable. The heart of the story. And the heart of the story is found in the owner's last option. He sent all these servants to no avail. Now he's going to send... His son. Now, as we read this, don't press the details of the parable too far. The son is not plan B, it's not a contingency plan because plan A didn't work. The son is the plan of the ages, the son is the purpose of creation. The reason God created the heavens and the earth was for the cross the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So don't press the details too far. But verse 13 does bring us to the heart of this parable. Look with me in verse 13. He sent the the prophets, and Mark says he sent many more than just the three. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Don't you love that language of beloved son? Doesn't it remind you of John 3.16? Uh, some of you know very little about the scriptures, but you know John 3.16. It's a beautiful verse. It's a beautiful truth. God so loved the world that He gave His only beloved son, His only begotten son, that whosoever believes in Him would not perish but have every everlasting life, eternal life. The Bible says, if you will just trust the Son, your sins will be forgiven. It reminds me of Romans 8.32. He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. How much more will He in Him freely give us all things? Or how about Galatians 4.4? In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, That He might redeem those who are under the law. It reminds me of Jesus' baptism. When the voice from heaven declares, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Praise God! He has a well-pleasing Son. Because if we're ever going to be well-pleasing to the Father, we must be united to the Son. also reminds me of the transfiguration. When you have this transfiguration of Moses and Elijah and Jesus in his spiritual state and the voice from heaven says, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. In fact, it takes us all the way back to Genesis 22. Where God tells Abraham in verse 2, He says, Take your son, your only son, whom you love. And offer him as a sacrifice. Now, that chapter is very important for understanding the gospel. Because when he offers Isaac on the altar, what God is saying, what God is declaring, is that we deserve judgment. Isaac deserves judgment. The people of God deserve judgment and all the nations deserve judgment because the nation's blessings will be found through the seed of Abraham. And so on the altar, God is declaring all of humanity deserves my judgment. I'm holy. Humanity is sinful. But also in that account, God offers a substitute. A ram is caught in the thicket. And the ram dies instead. Okay? Instead of us. The ram dies in our place. And so Genesis 22 speaks to the need for substitution. Divine self-satisfaction by divine self-substitution. And so when the Father sends the Son... In a sense, he is saying, I am sending a substitute. But here's what's ironic about this passage this substitute will die in the province of God at the hands of sinful man. Look in verse 14. In verse 14, Jesus says, But when the tenants saw him, that is the beloved son, They said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him. You know what that tells me? It tells me that they know deep down that Jesus is who He claimed to be. I don't think their problem was a lack of evidence. I think their problem was was too much evidence. And it was rocking their world. They did not like the fact that their righteousness would not stand before God. They did not like the fact that their control was about to be usurped by the Son of God. They recognized here this is the heir, but let us kill him. So that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What is Jesus doing here? He tell, he's telling us a story about himself, isn't he? It's very clear. But he's also telling us something about the owner's love. The fact that the owner would send his son, knowing that the son would die for people who hated him, tells us about the owner's love. It reminds me of Romans 5. for When we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for those who hated him. People like us. Okay? God demonstrated His love for us in sending His Son to die, His only Son, His beloved Son, to die for people who hate Him. That speaks to the owner's love. And this is also what R. Kent Hughes calls a prophetic autobiography. What is a prophetic autobiography? Well, prophetic means it's speaking to something that's going to happen. What is an autobiography? It speaks to your life. Jesus is saying, this is what's going to happen to me. He knew that the Father was sending Him to die. He knew what was going to happen. But why? So that God could be just and a justifier. So that God could be just in penalizing sin. Isn't it good that crimes get penalized? Isn't that a good thing? God must penalize, God must judge crimes against him. But he is also a justifier. So how does he a justifier? He judges the sin in a substitute. So that he could save the sin or sinner and judge the sin at the same time. And that's why the son came. Of course, the question is this, do you, do you believe the son? Have you bowed the knee to this son, the provision that God has made? Have you repented of your sins? Do you live in light of the authority of the son? And here's the good news. If your life up to this point has been fruitless, you've been a fruitless vineyard. There's no fruit. You don't love people. You don't love God and you don't love people. In fact, you just soon be in a room by yourself. You, You just despise people if the truth be known. And when you're nice to people, you're just faking it. Alright? Your life could be a fruitless vineyard up this morning. You could indeed be wicked. You could be an abortion doctor. Alright? Here's the good news of the Gospel. If you will come to the Son, God's provision, your sins will be forgiven. There's no sin... Beyond the reach of God's grace. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. But what will happen to those who don't embrace the Son? That becomes a very crucial question. What will be their destiny? And to answer that, Jesus is going to ask a rhetorical question. Note in the second part of verse 15. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? In other words, what does justice require for those who do not receive God's provision for sin? What does justice require? What must the, as Isaiah 33, says, what must the judge, the lawgiver, and the king do for those who do not receive God's provision for sin? And he answers that question. And this is not palatable. It does not in any way accord with our spiritual palates. But the problem is not with the truth. The problem is with our spiritual palates. Our palates are fallen, okay? Our palates need redeeming. Now notice what he says in verse 16. He will come and he will destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. The tenants will be destroyed and he's going to give the vineyard to others. Now what is he talking about there? The spiritual leadership for the vineyard is going to be transferred over. And it's going to be transferred over from the, the Sanhedrin to the apostles. Okay? And, and essentially the gospel now through the apostles is going to go to the Gentiles. And up to this point, the crowd has been very enthusiastic about Jesus. If he would have just kept his mouth shut, all would have gone well. But he had to keep talking. And now, they are angry. Because what he is saying is, is that God is going to reject their spiritual leadership. That's exactly the point. That brings us to the point. Notice in verse 16, When they heard this, they sure surely not. They're angry that, that Jesus is saying that God essentially is in opposition to their spiritual leaders. But remember though, Israel was birthed to be a blessing to the nations. Okay? That was its purpose. The Abrahamic covenant. Through your seed all the nations will be blessed. That was its purpose. And then they had the court of the Gentiles that was to be a place of prayer and evangelism for the Gentiles, right? But instead of it being a place of evangelism and prayer for the nations, it had become a marketplace. In other words, these people were not concerned at the end of the day about the glory of God, the name of God, the honor of God, the fame of God. They were concerned about their... Position in the spiritual community. Now this is a very convicting thought, but it's absolutely the gospel truth. When we're not concerned about the spiritual condition of those around us, then it's not the glory of God that's animating our religion. It's something much more sinister. You recognize that? And I say that to myself way too often. I'm not jealous for the lost. I'm not jealous that God would save the lost. I have neighbors I've never shared the gospel with. Okay? And when I am not jealous for the name of God, it's going to reflect itself in the fact that I am not burdened for the spiritual condition of those around me. Which means, I can go to church every Sunday, every Wednesday, but it's not the glory of God that's animating and provoking my behavior. It's something much more sinister and idolatrous. So these spiritual leaders, they have no concern for God's name to the nations, and it reflects idolatry. And hence, because they're unrepentant, judgment is coming. And Jesus essentially is saying in response, This was prophesied. Uh, the, The rejection of the Messiah and his subsequent exaltation and the judgment on those who did reject him, all of that was prophesied. And that brings us to verse 17. He looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, that's Psalm 118. If you have a cross referenced Bible, you know that. And we saw weeks ago that Psalm 118 was a messianic psalm, which means it was a psalm that pointed to and was fulfilled in the Messiah. Remember when uh, Jesus made His way into Jerusalem on the triumphant Sunday? What are they singing? Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. That's Psalm 118, verse 26. And so it was a messianic psalm, and now he quotes verse 22 of Psalm 118. The stone that the builders have rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Uh, What was a cornerstone? Well, in antiquity, in the old days, uh, the cornerstone was the focal point of the building. Alright? Um, it was the principal stone around which the entire building was constructed. If you know the book of Job, you know that when God is answering Job's uh, questions about why, Lord, He responds by appealing to creation. And in Job thirty-eight six, God responds, Who laid the cornerstone? He's speaking of creation. There is a cornerstone to this creation. And now Jesus is quoting this verse. Now what in the world is He talking about? The stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Well, obviously the builders are the tenants, the spiritual leaders. Alright? Now in the original context, uh, what you have there is an incident that evidently happened. It's not recorded in Scripture, but tradition tells us. When the temple was being built in 1 Kings chapter 5, they found this stone that they were to bring from the quarry and they were to to shape it to fit the uh, needs of the temple building structure. This particular stone, evidently this happened in history... This, temp- this stone did not meet the specifications of the builders. And so what they did is the builders kind of pushed it to the side, rejected that stone. But this stone ended up being the perfect stone for the cornerstone, the foundation, the focal point of the temple. Alright? That's what tradition tells us. And Jesus says that historical event points to something else. You think I don't meet the specifications as the stone for a new temple, but I am going to be the chief cornerstone of a new temple, a temple that God is building. In fact, that's what John 2 means when Jesus said, You destroy this temple, I will raise it up on the third day, speaking about His body. It's a temple that's going to encompass the heavens, the new heavens and the new earth. It's what Paul is referring to in Ephesians 2. He says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, but Christ is the cornerstone of this new temple, this new church. Jesus says He's the stone that the builders rejected. And that brings us back to the original question. Do you believe in Jesus, the cornerstone? Is He the focal point of your life? Is He the foundation of your life? We're not talking about tradition here. We're not talking about the fact that your parents and your grandparents were Baptist. We're talking about the fact that you must bow the knee to Him in order to be saved. You know, Peter was there that day. And this had an indubitable impact on his life. One of those passages that we see that reflect that is 1 Peter chapter 2. And in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, he's citing Isaiah 28. And here's what he says. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Isn't that beautiful? The cornerstone is precious. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. That's what Peter tells us. Do you believe that Jesus is the cornerstone? Do you see Him as precious? You know, everyone is essentially like Gollum in Lord of the Rings. That ring was precious to Gollum. Everyone, all of us, has something that's ultimately precious in our life. Do you see Jesus as the precious one? Is He the cornerstone of your life? Do you believe that Jesus is the sin bearer? Do you believe that He's the scapegoat? Do you believe He is the one who made atonement for your sins? If not, you need to see how this parable ends. And it doesn't end in a way that Is palatable to us. Notice verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone, that is those who stumble over it, trip over it, will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Now, Jesus is quoting or alluding to Isaiah 8 here. Boy, this is a serious theme, isn't it? It's all over the Bible. In Isaiah 8, verses 14 to 15, God will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. Speaking of Yahweh, Jesus said, that's me. And many shall stumble on it and they shall fall and be broken. Now, in the context, he's referring to the fact that Syria and northern Israel, who's become apostate, they're coming against Judah. And Isaiah says, you don't need to fear this crisis. You don't need to fear this threat. You need to fear Yahweh. And if you will fear Him, He will be... If you will find your refuge in Him, He will be a sanctuary for you. But if you reject Him... He will be a stone, a rock of stumbling. You will be crushed. It will not end well for you. And Jesus says, I am the one who fulfills that. I am the refuge. I am the sanctuary. It's also alluding to Daniel 2, where, where Daniel perceives this stone, okay, that grows to this, become this great mountain and it crushes all the nations of the world. All the godless nations. But it becomes this great mountain and becomes a kingdom that will never be destroyed. That's where ultimate reality is. That's where history is headed. This stone who becomes this great mountain. Jesus is lifting the veil of the future. That's what He's doing. He's, he's taking the veil of the future from our eyes and He's declaring, I want you to see what will happen if you do not bow the knee and recognize my authority as the Son of God. Indeed, this parable illustrates what Paul said in Romans 11, verse 22, when he says, Behold then the kindness and the severity of God. Think about that combination. Kindness and severity. Kindness for those who embrace His provision. Severity for those who do not. Let me close with this one brief passage in Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4 Peter who was there and we know he's like the cowardly lion at this point in Luke because in just a day or two he's going to reject Jesus he's going to deny him three times, okay? I mean he is a he's a coward. But he gets bold. Why does he get bold? Because he saw Jesus after he was put to death. He saw the resurrected Jesus and then the Holy Spirit took hold of Peter, turned him inside out. He gets so bold that persecution falls on him. He gets arrested. That's how bold he was. And in Acts chapter 4, here's what he says. And he's speaking to the leaders. Verse 11. This Jesus... Is the stone. He's the stone that was rejected by you. The builders. Which has become the cornerstone. And he says. And there is salvation. In no one else. Amen. There is no under name. Under heaven. Given to man. By which we must be saved. Now, I didn't add this to the notes, but the next verse is beautiful. When they saw the boldness of Peter, perceived he was uneducated, a common man, they were astonished and they recognized he'd been with Jesus. You know, John 15 tells us that Jesus declares, I'm the true vine. Israel was the vine, Israel was the vineyard, but they went up wall. Okay? Jesus said, I'm the true vine. And if we're going to be saved, we have to come to the true vine.